Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, Is God Still Speaking? Samuel and the Silence of God. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, January 18, 2009. A church near my house has a sign in its front yard that proclaims, quote, God is still speaking, end quote. Is that really true? And if it is true, what is God saying today? Many places in the Bible describe God as forgetful, ignorant, remote, deaf, and even asleep. Compare Psalm 44:23 for example. In the Old Testament reading this week from 1 Samuel chapter 3, God is portrayed as speechless. It's as, it's as if he's been unable or unwilling to talk. We read in 1 Samuel chapter 3 verse 1, "In those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions." We generally don't interpret these descriptions of God in a literal way, nor should we. We explain these unflattering descriptions of gods as anthropomorphisms, in other words, as paltry human attempts to describe God who was ultimately beyond description, and to articulate the experience of many people today of the loneliness of abandonment in a silent world. After the Asian tsunami that killed 225,000 people in 11 countries in 2004, a little Indonesian boy remarked on television, We have left our traditional ways, and so God was angry with us. He abandoned us. I think I'm alive today to tell our people this. Indonesia is no more wicked or deserving of divine punishment than any other country. And in the New Testament, Jesus discouraged linking human misfortune with divine punishment. John chapter 9, 1 to 3. But maybe that little boy was on to something. Maybe he was right to describe divine activity as mysteriously intertwined with human choices. To picture human history as a dynamic synergism between God's speech and human response. History is not mechanistic, and still less is it meaningless. It consists of the interplay between the free decisions of people and the sovereign love of God. That's how I understand Samuel's assessment. The silence of God and the absence of vision he's described were not just a subjective feeling, a poetic anthropomorphism, or a human projection onto their image of God. Rather, Samuel accurately described an objective state of affairs. His day was a period of political anarchy in Israel's history, when, as we read in Judges 17.6, every person did what was right in his own eyes." End quote. It was a time when the two sons of the priest Eli, Hopni and Phineas, were, quote, wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord, end quote. 
1 Samuel 2.12. People were not listening. God was not speaking. He was silent. Visions were rare. Having left their traditional ways, as the Indonesian boy put it, God was angry with Israel. It's a chilling thought to imagine that God might grant humanity's request for autonomy, that he could honor our insistence that he leave us alone, or that he would stop speaking as a consequence of our not listening. Perhaps God's last terrifying word to us might be something like, I have answered your prayers and now grant you the horrible freedom you have craved. Since you are so disinterested as not to listen, I will no longer speak. From now on, the only voices you will hear will be your own. But a single person can make a difference. Samuel proved to be the exception in this story. Dedicated to the Lord by his mother Hannah at an early age, we read in 1 Samuel 2.26 that he continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with, and with men. In contrast to the silence that had fallen upon the land, God spoke to Samuel three times as a little boy, and he responded with his famous words, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And in contrast to the priest Eli and his two two degenerate sons who flaunted their sexual escapades in the place of worship, 1 Samuel 2.22, we read, quote, The Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of his words fall to the ground, end quote. The nation acknowledged him as a prophet who heard from and spoke for Yahweh. Samuel eventually crowned Israel's first king, Saul, but not before warning the nation about the oppression inherent in political power, 1 Samuel 8. By himself, Samuel ended the drought of divine silence in Israel. For we read in 1 Samuel 3, 19 and 21, Samuel's words came to all Israel. The story of Samuel and the silence of God reminds me of a saying from the early desert fathers in Egypt that emphasizes this decisive link between divine speech and human attention, between his call and our response, between word and obedience. Like so many of the sayings from the early fathers, this story from Abba Felix begins in one place but it ends in quite another. Some brothers who had some seculars with them went to see Abba Felix, and they begged him to say a word to them. But the old man kept silence. After they had asked for a long time, he said to them, You wish to hear a word? They said, Yes, Abba. Then the old man said to them, There are no more words nowadays. When the brothers used to consult the old men, and when they did did what was said to them, God showed them how to speak. But now, since they ask without doing that which they hear, God has withdrawn the grace of the word from the old men, and they do not find anything to say, 
because there are no longer any who carry out their words. Hearing this, the brothers groaned, saying, Pray for us, Abba. Perhaps the Indonesian boy spoke more than he knew. If there are, quote, no more words nowadays, end quote, from God, if he has, quote, withdrawn the grace of his word, end quote, that might have more to do with our human refusal to listen than with any divine reluctance to speak. And for further reflection, when and why have you ever felt the silence of God? Is God still speaking today? Where and how? And what is he saying? And finally, what are the dangers of claiming that God has spoken to you or through you? Samuel and the Silence of God For books this week, I review a book called Confessions of an Eco-Sinner, Tracking Down the Sources of My Stuff, by a British author, Fred Pierce. Boston, Beacon Press, 2008, 276 pages. By now, most of us have heard of our so-called carbon footprint. Fred Pierce is interested in what he calls his personal footprint. Just how much was that Tanzanian farmer paid in so-called fair trade wages for his pound of coffee that Starbucks sells for $12? Answer, about $1.46. What little girl in Bangladesh sewed your socks? Sure, you, you sort your garbage for curbside pickup and recycle as best you can, but where does your garbage ultimately end up? It all sounds ominous and guilt-inducing, but maybe I'm actually helping the subsistence farmer in Kenya by air freighting his green beans to Britain so that people can enjoy that luxury in the winter months. The British science writer Fred Pierce traveled over 100,000 miles in 20 countries to track down the sources of his stuff. His resulting book reads like a personal case study in globalization. He starts off by descending three miles down into the earth to learn how a South African mine extracts the gold for his wedding ring. He wonders about fair trade coffee. Quote, why should feeling virtuous come so cheap when it still leaves farmers so poor? End quote. He tracks down supply chains and examines the environmental consequences of goods and services. He identifies various trade-offs, some of which we can choose and others that are forced upon us. Child labor, government subsidies, market inequities, technological innovations, Walmart and the World Wildlife Fund all collide in this deeply personal book. Fred Pierce's Confessions reads like a travelogue that specializes in the economic, environmental, and ethical dimensions 
of virtually every aspect of your material life. What's not clear is how a so-called eco-sinner might go beyond token gestures and genuinely repent. Whether that's even possible, and even if it is, whether it would make much of a difference for the Malaysian fish farmer or the Chinese factory girl who makes subsistent wages to support my Western lifestyle. Fred Pierce, Confessions of an Eco-Sinner, Tracking Down the Sources of My Stuff. For film this week, I review a film called Burn After Reading from the year 2008. When the CIA spy Osborne Cox, played by John Malkovich, got fired for alcoholism, he lost more than his job. He also lost a CD with sensitive information that fell into the hands of Chad, played by Brad Pitt. Chad is a gum-smacking, fist-pumping fitness trainer at a place called Hard Bodies. His colleague, Linda Litsky, who's a serial internet dater with dreams of extensive cosmetic surgery, combine with him to make a dim-witted duo. They concoct a plan to sell Osborne's CD to the Russians to pay for Linda's cosmetic surgery. Osborne Cox is also losing his wife, Katie, who is having an affair with Harry, played by George Clooney, a federal marshal who's also a sex addict. Unintended consequences are the result for everyone in this clever comedy from the director, writers, and brothers Ethan and Joel Cohen. It was refreshing to see Brad Pitt and George Clooney cast in roles far outside their types, and to watch the Cullen brothers satire politics, sex, body image, addictions, and the longing for love. Burn After Reading, 2008. For poetry this week, We've posted a poem by the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann. The poem comes from a book of prayers called Prayers for a Privileged People, Nashville, Abington, 2008. The title of the prayer that we've posted this week is called Post-Election Day. Walter Brueggemann. You, Creator God, who has ordered us in families and communities, in clans and tribes, in states and nations. You creator God who enacts your governance in ways overt and in ways hidden. You exercise your will for peace and for justice and for freedom. We give you thanks for the peaceable order of our nation and for the chance of choosing, all the manipulative money notwithstanding. We pray now for new governance, that your will and purpose may prevail, that our leaders may have a sense of justice and goodness, that we as citizens may care about the public face of your purpose. We pray in the name of Jesus, who was executed 
by the authorities. Post-Election Day by Walter Brueggemann Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, January 18th, 2009. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.